Welcome to the Footprint Plus 2023 podcast series. How does ESG performance impact asset valuation in association with DeepKey? And new buildings must now comply with a host of increasingly challenging regulations and construction standards to ensure good ESG scores. However, the real estate market still doesn't have a standardised methodology to assess what impact environmental performance has on valuation. During this session, sponsored by DeepKey, we will be exploring how to incorporate environmental performance into valuation and we'll be asking how this can be used to inform real estate retrofitting strategies. We'll also be discussing how investors can anticipate and, more importantly, avoid asset value loss. And we'll be asking whether the goal should be to use ESG to retain value or to add value. Now, later, you'll get your chance to put your questions to our expert panel here via either Slido or you can raise your hands. We'll have a roving mic going around. So please don't pass up the opportunity when the moment comes. But first of all, let's have some introductions. Um, so we've got Lena Macrodimitri, who's Energy and Carbon Lead at Schroders. We've got Malcolm Hanna, who's, legal and general, uh, who's from Legal and General Investment Management. And we've got Lindsay Taylor, who's the UK Head of Delivery at DeepKey, our session sponsor, and is going to set the scene with a short presentation. Thank you, Liz. As you mentioned, um, we're looking to understand the impact that ESG could have on the asset value. And there's a number of different factors that have to be considered in that. We've got energy, we've got building type, location, and then we've got social and governance factors, which are a lot more difficult to quantify. And as you said, there's a lack of methodology to allow that transparency on the improvements of an asset and how is that then going to impact asset value. So at DeepKey, we want to sort of further kickstart that conversation. And what we've done is we've created a model and completed a case study both in Paris and in London. So DeepKey has expertise in environmental data collection. So we're really focusing on the E part of the ESG and specifically on carbon, of how we can quantify the scale of the costs and the potential impact. So the aim of this study is purely to focus on an idea of the costs required to be compliant with the environmental standards. So what did we do? So we took a model and we looked at the different archetypes of buildings that we have across the UK and we focused on two. Focused on what we've called ancient 180 and ancient 300. And these are characteristics common among older buildings within the UK. So we're looking at the energy profiles there. So for an ancient 180, we're looking about 180 uh, kilowatts per hour per metre squared and uh, about CO2 emissions of about 34 kg by metre squared. Ancient 300, again, 300 uh, kilowatts metre squared and uh, 57 kg of CO2 emissions meters squared. And that's the sort of typical emissions that we've seen with the data we are collecting across our portfolios. 
And the ancient 300 is really focusing on those sort of Victorian type buildings that we have specifically in uh, London. So what we did, taking those models, having a look and utilising the CREM pathway version 2 and understanding the future of the building with regards to that carbon intensity and then reviewing what's the potential capex investment that we need to make uh, to reach those goals. So that we're using a model looking at what are the refurbishment costs and we've gathered a lot of data to help understand that of the different types of refurbishment that's potentially required. And then overlaying with that, looking at what are the opportunity costs. So what is going to be the cost to complete the refurbishment, either due to lost rental income, missed revenues, because you need to close off certain areas of your building throughout that retrofit. So a particular case study, and the case studies are available online to have a look at for both Paris and London on deepkey.com. Can I just ask a quick question? Yeah. What were the key differences between Paris and London? So actually very similar. So if you take the typical buildings, as I think you, you know traditionally of Paris, the, the Hoffman style buildings, again, a lot of challenges faced there with the retrofit when you've got such an old style of building. So it's really looking to understand and assess from an asset value perspective, which is obviously high in these key locations, and then how can you retrofit that over time and the costs that are associated, which are obviously quite high for these older style buildings. So we took the model and looked through with asset value, yield, rent per square meter, occupancy rates to create that model, look at the capex needs, lighting, insulation, heat pumps, energy changes, and assessed and calculated how much is that gonna cost. Obviously, it's not cheap, and looking at it overall, you could be looking from anything from about 3% of an asset value right up to eight, nine, ten percent at least, depending exactly on the building's requirements. And then overlaying on top of that the missed opportunity, which could be 50% of your occupancy, say over a three-year year period, that total, and for the example we've got for a London West End, overall could be about 10% of asset value. If you look at that and extrapolate that across the UK, where we've got secondary cities such as Leeds, Glasgow, where your asset value is lower, that percentage could grow to the region of 17 to 20% of your asset value. And that, looking at that, how then do we look and calculate further to understand, is ESG then adding value uh, is this going to look at results um, uh, or assets being sold at a brown discount, potentially? And then how do we take our SNRG into consideration as well in that calculation? So we definitely, this is a starting point. We need more clarity. We need to look and consider how we can me measure that. Because is it going to be about 
a positive impact? Is it driven by our tenant engagement? Therefore, if we make the changes, is that going to grow our occupancy and give our higher yields? Or is the ESG calculation about adding or retaining the values of our real estate? I mean, that's a powerful question. And some of those stats were very, were really quite startling, weren't they? 10% or even 17 to 20% in some of the regional big cities. Now, we've just heard from Lindsay there about what she thinks. There's a, there's a decision there about whether it's retaining value or adding value. I want to get a bit of a viewpoint from you in the audience and what your thoughts are on that same question. So, as we, this is on Slido, so you can answer via Slido, or I might take a show of hands if I don't see that anybody's answering. Um, so, as we look to incorporate environmental performance into valuation, should we be looking to retain value or add value? So, can you please answer via Slido? You've got two options, retain value, this is all about avoiding brown discounts, or add value, um, strong ESG credentials should deliver a green premium. Let's see what we've got. We've got one. Is anybody actually doing this? Or I might take a show of hands if you don't do this in the next 10 seconds. We've got five. But I'm not sure what the results are. I might do a show of hands quickly just to see what we've got. So I've got six. I'm going to force you to raise your hands, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, so who thinks it's about retaining value? Okay, adding value. Everybody adding value. What do you think of that then? Is that what you expected? I would, I would expect an answer that would say both, actually. You think it, was going, it should have been both? I didn't give yeah. you the both option, oh. though. Yeah. So <laughs> I think if it was going to be one of the two, perhaps adding value is the, is the right answer. Thanks very much for that. So obviously everybody on the panel is already measuring the impact of ESG performance on asset valuation. And I'm keen to hear how they're going about it and how uh, uh, proactive they think the wider industry is being. So can I bring Lena in here, please, first? What's Schroeder's doing? Yeah, thank you, Liz. Obviously, ESG factors are becoming increasingly important. Um, can you hear her? Can you hear me? Oh, probably I need to bring this a little bit closer to my mind. Can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah better? Fine. Great. So ESG factors are definitely becoming increasingly important in the valuation process in um, uh, real estate investments. And in Schroeder's Capital, we have indeed realized that we must incorporate ESG considerations into how we assess performance of our assets, but most importantly, how we monitor the performance of our assets during their life cycle. So uh, we are indeed receiving an increasing amount of inquiries and actually quite diverse inquiries these days from our investor clients. Um, who want to really understand the risks, but also the opportunities behind uh, the environmental performance uh, of uh, their assets. And they also need to understand what are the improvements that may be applicable to those assets in order to enhance their sustainability credentials and most importantly, the re resilience uh, of these assets in the future. So we have integrated a few key processes and tools into our our investment uh, process uh, to really 
target sustainability improvements uh, through our investments life cycle. So starting with the, the acquisition stages, uh, we have made mandatory to our investment uh, management teams to consider a wide spectrum of sustainability uh, key indicators um, uh, by using a proprietary tool that we've got. We call it the ES our own ESG scorecard. And our ESG scorecard uh, would seek to evaluate the status quo uh, of buildings and also pull out the key uh, improvement opportunities for those assets. Now, those um, kind of sustainability audits powered by our proprietary ESG scorecard are also coupled with the requirement to pursue net zero carbon audits at the acquisition stage where we can. And I must insist that we try to emphasize into detailed sustainability and net zero carbon audits where we can into, into the acquisition processes because we do believe we really need to push attention to sustainability and make it a more measurable metric that affects decision making. And it has to be mandatory, you say, rather than... Well, we are trying to push it as a mandatory requirement to our investment management team and through our investment committee. So, yes, where we can and unless there is a really uh, justifiable reason why not, all of the assets that are being considered at the acquisition stage should um, uh, fill in our proprietary ESG scorecard and also go through a net zero carbon uh, audit. Because, yeah. What's been the response to that? Are people happy that it's mandatory or are they feeling a bit... <laughs> Uh, well, I think that our investment management team actually is recognizing how important sustainability is. And I was going to say how important it is to actually understand the projected impact of a new asset that is entering a, por a portfolio. So I think that they are quite embracing this kind of requirement. Obviously, there are some kind of teething issues in the very beginning of its new process or any new requirement, but we are there as a kind of a central sustainability advisory team to our investment management mm. team to try and ease out any uh, and they're kind inevitable, of challenges. Aren't they? It's inevitable that you're going to have some teething issues. It's quite a well, beginning of yeah, the journey. As, you know. as with all processes okay. in okay. all industries, yes. Can I bring Malcolm in here? How does that sort of tally with what you're doing at LGIM? Yes. I mean, to be frank, quite similar. Uh, so we probably about two, between two and three years ago, we introduced net zero audits as, um, as, as a requirement for all acquisitions. So we are, sorry, I'm just gonna stop with the feedback. We, um, we, we use that as a, as a key tool now, and it is challenging, because obviously a, a transaction, you often have quite a short window of opportunity. So we've had to, if you like, go through a process with some of our consultants to enable them to be able to get in and, and do that work for us rapidly. And the idea is, yeah, we, we get an idea of where is the asset today? Yeah, we've got a net zero destination. What are the key steps that need to be taken to get there? And what are the cost estimates associated with that? And then that equips our investment committee and also our transactions team to use that as part of a negotiation. I would say that at this stage, it's not always part of the negotiation, but we think that increasingly that will become as the as we get better at this, and also, to be frank, as the industry starts to do it more consistently, so you've got two, two property owners here both saying they're doing that, mm. we think it's going to be, become more and more. So how often is it part of the negotiation at the moment? I would, I would say it's probably, I don't know, maybe a third, 25%, third of the time, roughly. But, but it's, you know, it's, it depends on the types of properties we're buying, mm -hmm. and it also depends on the, 
the nature of the improvements, um, and we'll talk about this later, but um, there's also this, you know, there's, there's a slightly gray area where you know, you've, got, you've got a property that needs refurbishing just to, just to maintain its functionality. So, you know, you've got to invest in that. So, you know, the, the windows are going to fall out if you don't replace them. So the question then is, you know, what's the cost of that versus the cost of doing something over and above to get you to net zero? So, you know, th there are gray areas there, but I think the basic approach that people wanting to understand, we're buying an asset, you know, where is it on that journey to net zero? Uh, and what do we think the, the size of the task and the cost around that are? So we can, as an industry, start to become better at that which ultimately you know, should start to feed into, as I say, some of those transactions, some of those valuation ideas as well. That's kind of where we're trying to get I'm to. wondering whether it's because at the moment people only see it as a need to have in 25 to a third of cases, and that's why they haven't yet embraced it across the piece. But, and that must come down to people not maybe understanding what the risks are of not doing it or the benefits of doing this are. So I'm going to bring um, Lindsay back in here. You know, what are the risks if we don't do this? Yeah, I think... Um Ultimately, we're at risk of having stranded assets, utilising the creme pathway and having a look that you're going to have assets that are going to be heavily brown discounted uh, and assets losing incredible value. You're going to have tenants that don't want to occupy your space yes. because it isn't fit for purpose. It's not going to reach the goals. And it... It's going to cost longer in the long term if we don't think about it now and plan that effectively. So even coming back to looking at occupancy, how can you do incremental retrofit so that you're not having to shut off more of your building to be able to continue to operate the building and continue to get good rental income while you're, you're taking the, the asset on its journey. But I think we're in real danger that if we don't, and at a city level or an area level, if these buildings then become unoccupied, yes. super important for our cities and environments in our cities, that they are occupied in other local businesses as well. I mean, you alluded earlier to differences in locational um, sort of approach yeah. to things and the, the, the percentage of um, asset that of the asset that's going to be sort of reduced by yeah. value-wise. Do you think that the big cities are more aware of this and acting more quickly and there is a lag yeah. in the regions? And I think there definitely will be. And if you look at, say, secondary or tertiary cities where the cost is going to be higher, they are definitely more at risk then. Will people be occupying those buildings or will they be left? And that knock-on impact will be felt a lot more significantly even in the larger cities. Okay. Malcolm, what are the upsides though if we get this rise? Yeah, I mean I think um, so I think it was alluded to at the start. So so there's there's research out there. I mean it's based on London because London's got a really good pool of offices and it's got lots of certified buildings as well. Uh, so there's work done by JLL not long ago which um, identified that buildings with certification with, with ESG certificates effectively could look at uh, premiums of somewhere in the region of 20% in terms of valuations and, and maybe around 11 or 12% in terms of rental uplift. And similarly, uh, Knight Frank did some work where they looked at um, the impact of Bream, Bream certifications and they also identified that there was, there was, there was a rental increases of sort of 4 to 12%. So I think, and, you know, we, we, we've got to be um, honest about it. I mean, building certifications are what they are. That they're, they're not... Um, they're just an indicator, they're a proxy. Uh, and in some areas, 
they're not particularly helpful, for example, in terms of helping us to understand what the real-world energy performance of buildings are. But they're nevertheless, they are, they are, um, they're a badge and they're a label that people look to as an indicator. And they're obviously, you know, they represent something. So they, they, they represent the fact that, um, you know, people attach some extra value, so some extra weight to those things. I think the other thing, the other thing to mention is that um, when we talk about maybe some of the, let's say, the secondary or tertiary market areas, one of the things that I think we found is that, um, you know, if you, take, if you take a building in one of those markets and you actually do a really good refurbishment job on it, you can actually make a real difference and you can, you can actually give yourself an ad, a real edge. Um, and we think, okay, that's a combination of a good refurb but also incorporating good e ESG credentials because we think generally there's a rising interest, a rising demand, even in those, those lower sort of sectors. So I think there's an opportunity there. And also, you know, we, we, we find, um, and I, you know, I'll stick my neck out slightly, but what, what, what we're finding is if, if we do a good job on a refurbishment, say we incorporate some on-site renewables that may be a part of that rental approach, we think we can actually start to get some rental premium um, around some of those properties. So I think there is opportunity. Can but, you but quantify I, the rental premium? Um, yeah, relatively small percentages, but there is something there. You know, mm -hmm. I, I've spoken to some of our asset managers recently about this. But, and, and again, yeah, hold your hand up and say, it's sometimes difficult to understand whether that's just because you've done a refurbishment, whether it's purely down to the ESG premium, if you like. But we think there is something there. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, you know, I suppose what I'm saying is, I was interested in the response earlier where people were saying it was all about adding value. I mean, to be frank, many, I think many of the property owners come at this primarily from a, a risk reduction perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we've got to make sure that we are um, future-proofing our assets against regulation, against reputation, against the, the demands of investors. Um, but I do think there is a, an emerging element around, uh, yeah, differentiation, adding value, um, which I think that's going to grow. Uh, you know, innovation will lead some of those, those, those new opportunities. And you mentioned future-proofing there, Lena. I know that that's something that you are very focused on at Schroeder's. Yeah, well, it is, as I said before, it's particularly, can you hear me again? It's particularly yeah, it's important bit. to future-proof our assets. And I just wanted to say, obviously, we need to future-proof our assets, not only against uh, regulatory requirements, but also market requirements. Um, uh, definitely, I think we all agree that um, ESG considerations is what is going to drive the real estate investment in the next at least 10 years. And as somebody quoted recently on LinkedIn, um, we need the capital growth, but without, uh, we, in order to get the capital growth, we need rental growth. And in order to have rental growth, uh, uh, we need to, um, to be considering the human factor of uh, usefulness and desirability of our buildings. So that brings into the equation, obviously, uh, any net zero carbon requirements. And as Malcolm said, this, this is probably the most quantifiable indicator at the moment that can, can feed into the valuation process of our assets currently and into the future. But it also brings indicators such as health and well-being or social indicators that are har harder to a measure at the moment, uh, as in the impact that they've got in the value of our assets. But um, I do have actually some uh, quick research statistics, obviously. I cast my eyes on them that shows that basically newer buildings that actually prioritize health and well-being uh, features may command, may command actually higher uh, rent uh, premiums com compared to uh, older uh, buildings. and. It's, um, 
and there are statistics on net absorption uh, rates uh, for occupancy. Uh, these are particularly based on offices, which shows uh, that there is, uh, it is um, much higher likely to target very high percent, uh, absorption, net absorption rates of 95% or above for uh, new buildings that definitely have um, uh, some, uh, some kind of disclosure of health and well-being features. Um, plus, there are also statistics that show that uh, post-pandemic, uh, we should be expecting a higher premium rate straight on in the beginning of the life cycle of a new building. And that um, uh, rate potentially has a much more steep decline as uh, some of the buildings are get, getting older, older, so I mean, um, after 10 years old, and especially when they don't have a particular and coherent refurbishment uh, plan uh, in place to assess all of those indicators in the future. You mentioned that it's hard to sort of measure some of these sort of softer metrics, I suppose, but there's also a challenge, isn't there, over standardization, which Lindsay alluded to earlier. Um, What's being done to address that? You, you know, is it the Urban Land Institute valuation tool? Is that something you can yes. get your mic working Sorry. enough to talk no, about? Or? I'm going to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So standardization definitely is a significant challenge that we are facing in the real estate industry because it also drives how we can actually compare our assets uh, together to, uh, to improve the uh, value of our investments. So, yeah, I just wanted to talk about um, a project that is going on in parallel. Uh, this is a project that is being driven by the Urban Land Institute, or in abbreviation, many of you may have heard it as the ULI Institute. Um, and they are driving uh, the sea change project, the climate change project, essentially, uh, which is aiming to create, let's say, a standard process of valuation. So essentially they are creating a valuation tool that will be taking under consideration um, various key sustainability indicators with particular focus to energy and net zero carbon. So they will be looking at um, the cost of transitioning um, assets to net zero carbon and how these costs may be affecting any above the line or below the line indicators that are normally taken into consideration uh, in the valuation uh, process. Uh, there is um, a very uh, kind of thorough uh, key stakeholders uh, consultations uh, that are actually being driven by the ULI Sea Change project at the moment to identify all of those key indicators which should be taken into account into valuation. Yeah, and uh, Malcolm, you, you, um, you obviously think that um, data is, is really important and the, this, you mentioned earlier the cost of transition yes. as well. Can you just elaborate a little bit on, on that and how yeah. to rise to that challenge? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, if you take the UK, there's actually very, very few net zero buildings at the moment. Uh, so, you know, the, the jury's still out in a sense in terms of the actual cost of transition. So people like us and others are, are doing, I mentioned some of the audit work we're doing. As we start to move into implementation, we're starting to get much more accurate um, figures, uh, you know, starting to emerge around the cost of that transition. I also mentioned, you know, there, there are some grey areas, so there's the, the, the fact that, um, you know, at some point in the future we'll just say, you know, the, the cost of refurbishment by, def by default will be to a net zero standard. But while we're in this transition period, people still talk in terms of, if you like, the premium, the extra to get there. Uh, and we don't really have that 
we don't really have a good, a really good idea yet of what that represents, I would say. So we're working towards that. I mean, the, the, the data piece, the transparency, um, the ability to understand what is the performance of properties, that, that, that is a work in progress. So we've got the Better Buildings Partnership. We're also starting to work on their, their investment toolkit, which hopefully will help as well. So again, that's trying to make it, you know, so that people like us, if we're, if we're selling a property, we'll provide a consistent package of data for the next people who are going to transact it. And, and if we can sort of develop that and roll that across the industry so that we have a you know, consistency or robustness around that, it'll then become much easier for people to see that and really understand it. But that is, and we're on that journey at the moment, I'd say, and there's, there's still plenty to do in that. And we are, are we right at the beginning of that journey? Or I'd say we're... We made some headway. Maybe not right at the beginning, but we're, we're at the, in the starting area of it, I think, yeah. We're st on there's the still a bit lap. to go. Still a bit to go. Okay, yeah. so we need better data. We need more standardization. We need more transparency. Yeah. And in getting all of those things, will we then have turned what looked like a lot of challenges at the moment into an opportunity? I mean, how do we reframe this so that it looks like an opportunity to people? Lindsay, can I bring you back in here? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as, as Malcolm was saying, it, it's, it starts with the data. Get the high quality data in and then you can truly understand the performance of your building and what do you need to do to make that difference to hit those goals and to plan for it correctly. And I think that's the foundation and that's what we're spending a lot of time with our clients at the moment is really digging in, ensuring we've got that good quality data and then what are the actions? What does the investment plan look like to bring on that pathway uh, to hit that net zero goal. Uh, the demand from the client, uh, from the tenants, that's always going to be number one. I think they're always going to drive that in the background and ensure that with that, then you can increase your rental and your occupancy. And those are the real two key drivers that actually will drive Do, do tenants buy revenue. into this? I mean, you're gonna put the rent up? I think the demand and the conversations we're having with our client, as I say, we're, we're at the beginning of the journey, but they're definitely seeing clients are asking those questions. The tenants want to know. Mm. They want to know they're in the right buildings because their employees want that. Mm. Uh, I think more and more when people are looking for jobs, they want to ensure that they're coming to a good company and that includes the environment that they're working in along with the values of a company. So I think that's super important and that can have the knock-on effect. But again, it's going to cost some money to do this. I'm upfront costs as well here. here. I mean, are, is the industry prepared to take this on, especially if you then relay to your to tenants they might have to pay a little bit more. Um, Lena, can I bring you in here? I'll well, come to you in a second, Malcolm. Well, we, we all recognize that transitioning our assets to net zero carbon obviously um, has some cost to it. But at the same point, at the, at the same time, we have to realize that availability of net zero carbon buildings at the moment is, is quite uh, low, so uh, that is uh, expected to actually drive uh, the rent premium uh, higher um, in the next few years, if anything. Okay. So yeah, so, yeah, I think I think we we we've certainly seen big drivers from investors and from occupiers who want to occupy and want to invest in, uh, you know, the, these sorts of properties at, at this stage. I mean, it may be that as you know, as we push into 
wider um, populations of buildings, more challenging buildings, we, we may get, you know, we, we may see some differences there. But fundamentally, we, we still see that as a big driver. Um, and I think just coming back around, just finally on the, on the data point as well, I mean, you mm. know, to be fair to the valuers, you know, they, they need some sort of clarity in terms of information in order to build these things into those valuations. And even things like on-site renewable energy, where we've got projects that are becoming more and more, um, you know, more, and more prevalent. Uh, you know, some of the values you talk to are still not quite able to get the right data to be able to put values on those in terms of the revenue they're going to generate. So th there's, there's a piece there that needs to be put in place so that we can see that feeding through into those valuations, which is not quite there yet. And then you're going to get those accurate um, evaluations that are exactly. all important. Yeah. Um, yeah. Going back to that point of valuation and um, what we think ESG and embedding that um, does, whether it retain, allows you to retain value or add value. I think we've all agreed that it, we're looking to do both here, retain and add value. So for a very quick fire response from all of the panelists, what's the one single thing that the industry needs to be doing now to ensure both of those outcomes? I'll start with you, Lindsay. So it's about data. Get your data, understand your position and create those opportunities and start making the incremental changes now. And I'll be cheeky and just add in a second point. Um, it's about continuing to discuss the ESG value and as an industry coming together on how we can create that methodology. What does that look like so that we can really show the true value of ESG in our real estate assets? Fantastic. Lena? Yeah, I would fully agree with Lindsay here. We need collaboration uh, across all market participants, whether they are investment managers, occupiers, architects, etc. And we need all to stand up and realize what is our con contribution um, of our actions to energy and carbon future of our buildings. We need to be transparent, have accurate data. Uh, I want to emphasize on transparency of our disclosures and methodologies, especially estimation methodologies for those data that go into our reports, uh, so we can all affect some good change in our product and service levels. I would also like to say that I would like to, um, to see our industry ad addressing sustainability at some point, not as an externality, uh, but as an opportunity, actually, to improve performance of our assets and, and really sell out the sustainability story of our assets rather than the transition risk of our assets. That's at least four things <laughs> yeah. you've gone for. I think you went data, collaboration, transparency, and to see it as an opportunity. Malcolm? There's nothing left for me, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, no, no. I was, pretty much all of those. Th I mean, I think, yeah, that this idea of collaboration in terms of transparency, data, you know, consistency, um, industry needs to come together to develop those sort of tools that we spoke about earlier. Um, I would just add one other thing. I mean, and again, you know, we can't, we can't sit around and wait for government, but I think it would help actually if the, some of the regulations, particularly around um, performance ratings of buildings, operational performance, that would really help actually, because that would help to open the box on some of this data, some of this information that would be there for everybody, you know, right, right from the get-go. So, um, yeah, the, 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 there's another angle there, but, uh, but you know, we've got to do it ourselves. In the well, it shouldn't be a proprietary issue, and if you have that transparency, you yes. stop that happening, don't you? Absolutely, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, thanks for that. Now, I'm going to come to you and ask for your questions shortly. I know some of you have put questions via Slido, but very quickly, you've heard what the panel had to say. There's a question I want to put to you via Slido. Please answer via Slido, otherwise I'm going to do the 
show of hands again. And that question is, how confident are you that the industry is going to rise to the valuation challenge? Are you very confident, because it's now taken as read, that ESG performance should be factored into valuation? Are you neutral, because the will may be there, but not sure about the way? Or are you not very confident, because too many other things to worry about? So let's see where you're going with it. Oh, we've had 13, although I can't see what the results are. <laughs> Am I supposed to see a number here by these, because I can't see? Or do I actually have to... No, I can't see the outcome yet. Um, I'm also going to ask you to raise your hands then. So who is very confident? Who's neutral? I reckon this is going to be 50%. Okay. And who's not very confident? Oh, so lots of people didn't respond there. So what did you make of that, panel? Um, Was that what you expected? Um, so yeah, I think so. Pretty yeah. neutral. Yeah. I think we're, we're, we're a positive bunch, aren't we? I think. <laughs> that wasn't, that's not positive. That's <laughs> no, no, I think most people said that they were... Uh, neutral, so I'll take neutral. Yeah, you'll take that, <laughs> given where we are on the journey. Right, let's get some questions from the audience now. Um, so we've got, I mean, from Anonymous, we've got, how is the S and the G being tackled in property valuation? I think that's a really interesting question. We have focused a lot on the E today. Who wants to pick up on that? I think, um, I mean, I'll just start. I think the, it's probably fair to say the S perhaps is... I'm going to say it's in its infancy. I mean, people are doing quite a lot of work for some time on, on the S. So you have people like the Social Value Portal who've been measuring uh, social value. Uh, in fact, we, we did, we've done quite a lot of work on that in the past, measuring uh, social value. I think the, the challenge is how you then sort of translate some of that measurement into, into, into the more tangibles. Um, and also to show, to show that what, what you've done is additional uh, and, and is, is, is above and beyond you know, what, what, what exists anyway. So I, I think I would say that it's, um, yeah, it, it's emerging um, and, and we're not alone. People like ourselves, we're doing a lot more work in that area. We think it's going to become increasingly important. So just linking into DeepKey, not looking to plug DeepKey, but we just started doing some work with DeepKey to actually start to gather some more of that S data in a more um, deliberate way and to start to report against KPIs on it because we'd like to start to share some of that information. It comes back to what I was saying earlier, though. The ability to share that to people in the right places so they can then start to factor that into their thinking around valuation. I think it's still a little way to go on it. I think it's because there's a lot of it that isn't measurable, but you, there is plenty that is also measurable. I mean, people starting to talk about social value versus social impact now, aren't they? Lena? Yes. So, no, I was just going to mention again the work from the ULI Seed Change project that's currently going on, and there is appreciation there that there, may, there are many factors uh, such as social risk or even reputational risk that should be included somehow into the valuation process. We need a lot of uh, data and you know, engagement from the industry to really understand how different investment houses basically are um, embedding social uh, indicators into the evaluation process. At the moment, there is a proposition that some of those indicators actually are included into a kind of shadow, discounted cash flow model mm. within the valuation model that is being developed by the Seed Change Project. So these are definitely indicators that um, uh, key stakeholders, such as the ULI Seed Change Project, basically are taking into account at the moment, and they start investigating 
Uh, it's just that uh, obviously we need more engagement to make them more quantifiable until we are ready to really yeah. put them as part of the quantifiable indicators in the actual discounted cash flow uh, models. Yeah, agree. Great. I think we've still got a way to go, but we're having some really great conversations about how we can turn a lot of the work that companies are doing and how do we quantify that in measures. Yeah. But I think, again, as an industry, how do we get some industry-wide measures that can really be measured right across the board? It's so important, isn't it, to have something that everybody agrees on and then connect and aspire to. Um, another question here from Jeff Parsons. Um, it's quite a big question. Do the panel think market demand for ESG performance, such as from tenants, as opposed to industry standards, um, drive ESG more, less, and for the better or the worse? So I think he's asking, is ES, is, 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 are tenants the bigger driver here, or is industry standards the bigger driver? Nina? I think, I think both. As I said, it's not only regulatory requirements or industry standards, but it's mainly the Occupy requirements and, and especially projections of Occupy requirements into the future that are driving uh, decision-making from the sustainability point of view at the moment. And I shared some statistics earlier on to say that actually net absorption rates in office space are higher for, for those buildings that have, have higher sustainability credentials, particular health and well-being um, indicators embedded yeah, into I mean, their strategy. To be, to be absolutely honest, you know, I think industry standards are not really driving... Like the, they've been driving standards, obviously, mm. but in terms of the sort of standards we're talking about now, in terms of net zero, etc., I don't think the industry standards have not really got there. So, you know, there's a way for them to go on that. I, I think I think occupiers do have a, a big a big role. I would, I'd, I'd also add, though, investors. To be frank, we, we, we feel it more from our investors. Uh, over the past three or five years, uh, investors have been putting increasing pressure, increasing interest uh, on people like us, property holders, landlords, etc., uh, to say, you know, what are you guys doing? How are you protecting our investments? What are you going to do in the future? So probably that's been I th I think probably the biggest biggest driver uh, over the last recent history um, yeah and as long as there is a driver it should happen yes. and I think if yeah, people yeah. are sort of starting to understand that this does need to but that's, happen I mean that has been the real difference I mean cause I've, you know, I've been in this industry for like over 30 years that is the big difference in the last for the last few years where the investors are saying mm. you know we want to see movement we're concerned uh, yeah Got a really interesting question here from Susie Jones. What do you think the impact of this will be on listed assets, which are really difficult and therefore inhibitively, inhibitively costly to refurbish to relevant standards? Can anybody pick up on that? I, I mean, I think, um, yeah, listed assets. I mean, there's always been a challenge around listed assets. I, I suppose I, I sort of maybe try and sidestep it by saying, you know, they're a relatively small group in terms of the, the population of buildings that we have to tackle. Uh, so, um, you know, we, we've got a huge amount of work to do with existing assets that aren't listed. We've also got a lot of work to do with new, new developments. I'd say with the listed buildings, I mean, you know, there are technical solutions out there. I mean, there, there are things that people can do um, that, you know, and there have been for quite a long time. Um, there, will be some, there will be some areas that we we have to take a view on and say, well, actually, you know, for the, 
this is a building that we really value um, we, and we think there's a limit to how far we can go with that and then that slack will need to be taken up by other parts of the sector but I, but I do come back I mean I you know in the past I've done quite a lot of work in um, with, with listed buildings and, and I, you know there are there are solutions there are things that can be done in certain areas so you know I think I think there's there's scope there so people are starting to sort of t try and tackle they have, or they, I mean, they have been for quite a long time, you know, so, you know, even things like churches and cathedrals did a lot of work with the Church of England, if you, and, and, you know, th there were some technical solutions there that could be, could be you know, could, could go some way to tackling it. I think we need to go as far as we can with all, with all of these buildings, but we need to balance it. Uh, and we have to think about embodied carbon, and we have to think about, you know, the, the trade-off between those things as well. Yeah, there's a limit to what you can do with the list yeah. of building, for sure. And um, so, final question, I think we've got time for one more very quickly. Um, does the panel have any experience of, with how the banks are assessing ESG metrics when valuing for a purchase or refinance? Can you really pick up on that one? Is that a no? Just try to just, just say it again. Sorry. So it's how, are, how are the banks assessing ESG m metrics? I mean, my view is the banks are coming under uh, similar pressures that the other financial institutions are coming under. We, you know, so I think... Um, in time, the, the whole sector, the amount of regulation that's coming down the track in this area is, is just growing astronomically. And we had an internal training session yesterday where we, we just drew a comparison between even two years ago and the sort of regulations are affecting the financial sector. Uh, it's just, so, so in a way, um, you know, I, th I think it's gonna infect, it's gonna affect that, the whole sector um, and the whole sector's gotta respond. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, th there's not gonna be anywhere Increasingly, there's not going to be there's not there's not going to be any sector that isn't impacted by this. That's that's our general feeling. I'd say. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Does anybody else have a question that they want to ask? They've got no seconds, but you did very very quick one. Very quick one. Just here. I think the mic's coming to you, but we've got to make this quick on the answer. So maybe just one person take this. I just wondered on the panel's thoughts around um, the balance between risk mitigation as far as implementing ESG is concerned versus um, value add through increased rates or occupancy? What's the driver? Yeah. I um, think it's, it, yeah, it's a balance. It's, it's, it's got to be a balance. You've got to absolutely address the issues because we've got targets, they're looming. So there will be that pressure, but at the same time, we've got to look and understand actually, can you grow that asset value? Super important. and. There's going to be a comparison from a building that has made the change to those that haven't. So I think it's always going to be between the two. And, and I just wanted to say, let's face it, if we don't address risk, there may be missed opportunities in transactions. Uh, if I had time, I could potentially uh, talk a little bit about a very quick case study where we had a post-transaction recently. Um, in a prime location in London, basically, where uh, the vendor was asking for 25 million for a really uh, very good marketed asset, but our advisor was valuing this asset much less. Why was that? There was lack of uh, transparency in reporting. There was no net zero carbon report for this particular asset. So uh, net zero carbon was not really assessed there as a transition risk. If we had a kind 
kind of um, more kind of robust disclosure of the performance of the asset and how this can transition to net zero carbon, I believe that uh, the vendor and our advisor would have uh, been met uh, more somewhere in the middle, and then transition would have progressed. Would have been progressed. So there is always a balance that we can strike between. Uh, transition. So perfectly summing up actually the case for, I think. Thanks very much to the panel, Malcolm, Lena and Lindsay. And thank you very much to the audience as well for uh, participating. Thank you. Thank you.